You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah.gmail.com. And, of course, I will, many as, I will answer as many as I can. The world has gone crazy. It's just, it's nuts out there. You know, uh, if you, there's just no way you're not paying attention to anything in the news. Of course, there's a war going on, and there's, and there's refugees, and there's people that are suffering. And, and it, it just occurred to me because today begins the month of Adar, the Jewish month of Adar, a very happy month in the Jewish calendar. We're going to start to talk about it. But I, I think there's at least an idea to think about with the Purim story right now. And that is that I'm sure everybody's watching all of these refugees and the crisis that's going on. And I, I read this morning, there's already a million people. Um, I was told yesterday, people trying to get into Poland, there's a 30-hour wait. And of course, you have the elderly who can't move, they can't get anywhere, they can't go anywhere, so that's a difficulty. And and now let's try to imagine as much as we perhaps, I told my class today, I said, you know, here life is good. Let's not fool ourselves. We are not suffering because there's suffering on the other end of the world. We're just not. Let's be real. But what can we do? What can we do? So I told my class the least we could do is if there's other people suffering, let's pray. So we added a two paragraphs, one from Psalms, from Tehillim, and then a very famous prayer, just so we at least recognize that there are people that are suffering, and the next step is people are suffering, let me pray for them. Maybe I'll feel for them a little bit. Now let's sort of juxtapose that to the Purim story, and we're going to get deep into the Purim story today. But the very beginning of the Megillah um, talks about how Ahasuerus, the king, um, ruled the entire world. And for the Jews, this was bad because in other times in history, God protects us. So uh, Rome is going after us. We could live in, uh, in, uh, in the east, Iran, Iraq, those areas of the world where Rome didn't get to. Who's ever... Germany's running the world, there's America, there's Australia. Whenever we've suffered, whenever nations have gone after the Jewish people, there's always been an escape, except the story of Purim. There was nowhere to go. There was no refugee crisis of all the Jews running away because there was nowhere to run to, which is something quite different than anywhere else in history. So while, again, we're watching this uh, crisis going on in the Ukraine and all those people trying to protect themselves and those families trying to get out, they have a place to go. It's bad, right? We have to recognize that. It's not good. But what we, what we need to recognize is the world does have the ability to open their, their doors and say, look, 
you're suffering, we're going to take you in, we're going to try to figure this out, at least for the people that can get out. While in the story of Purim, there was no escape. There was nowhere to run to, because Ahasuerus ruled over the whole world. Okay. With that, let's talk Purim. Purim. (laughs) Yay, Purim. I guess that's a good way to start. Yay, Purim. We have this phrase that we say, when the month of Adar enters, we add to our joy. So you can imagine in a school like mine, today is a fun day. People are getting into the Purim spirit. The children are more jumpy. They're harder to control. They'll have a scavenger hunt. They're running up and down the hallways. It's uh, it's fun. Uh, I call it controlled chaos. I must tell you, when there is controlled chaos, it makes me very tired. Just the just the idea of not my my regular um, orderly day, um, and I could go with the flow. But days like this, there's a lot of pressure on teachers. We gotta have our eyes open and be watching and and know that people are all over the place. So it's a, it's a different kind of day and it's a different kind of month. So my son asked. He said, you know, there's other holidays during the year. There's other miracles that have happened to the Jewish people. Why do we say that when the month of Adar comes, the whole month we're happy? We don't say this on any other holiday. So if you look in the Megillah, it actually says, we're going to get there, that a Haman, Haman the Wicked Man, right, for those who know the song, um, uh, Haman, or Haman, he was looking with stars and astrology and and uh, power, impurity powers. He was doing all kinds of stuff. He was looking for the opportune time, that moment that would be the best one, that he would be successful in destroying the Jewish people. So the first thing he looked for was the right month. Which month can I destroy the Jewish people in? So therefore, he we start with a month, then he goes to a day, but first the month. So the fact is he wanted to destroy us, so even the month that he was looking to destroy us in, right? God flipped it around and made it into a very fantastic month for us, and he obviously was not successful. Okay. So it's, it is interesting, by the way. We talk about, right, let's refocus. Um, there's a holiday, we get the Torah, that's, the, um, that's Shavuos, Pentuch. There is the Sabbath where we, where we get to sit and study Torah. There is Purim where we, um, again, we reestablished our commitment to keeping the Torah. Um, but that, those are individual days, Right, so we're happy on the month because it's not just it's true. The Purim we accepted to we reaccepted to keep the Torah and that we'll do whatever God tells us to do. But but that's 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 why we celebrate the day. We're celebrating the month because the Jewish people were saved from annihilation. That is really the bottom line. So let's try to give us an overview, a historical, where we are, what's going on in history, what, what's taking place. So the first temple was destroyed by a king, a Babylonian king, by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. So this takes place approximately 2,500 years ago. Now, he's king, 
and then um, then his son takes over, and then there's this king called El Shatzer. So what happened was, and it's amazing, I, I just find this amazing, Jeremiah um, was a prophet um, during the destruction period, and he prophesied about the temple being destroyed, and he also prophesied that Jewish people would be in exile for 70 years, and then they'd come back and rebuild the second temple. Now, it is amazing that all these kings that conquered the world were extremely concerned with his prophecy. It was just not just they said, I'm stronger, God can't do anything to me. They, they knew there's God. They understood that there's a God, and for whatever reason, God let them go destroy the temple. But at the same time, they're concerned that what's going to be after the 70 years? So they all made different calculations of when the 70 years was over. When the Babylonia took over, when they conquered Jerusalem, when they conquered the temple, when, the, when everybody was out of Israel, there's different calculations. So Nebuchadnezzar is dead, right? His rule is over. And Belshazzar is king. And according to his calculation, the 70 years was up. So he says, okay, 70 years is up. God did not take the Jewish people back. It's all over. The Jewish people are done. We're in control. No more temple. No more worrying about God. It's all over. So he makes a party. Happened to be that they had gone to war with, uh, with Persia and Media against, I guess, uh, Babylonia. And he had won the war. And he comes home to celebrate. So he wants to celebrate with the, with the vessels of the temple. Now, again, this was, it was an amazing mindset that they had. Right? Was, they were very worried about God that God should take away the kingdom. So during the 70, what they imagined was the 70-year period, they were going to be careful not to make God angry. Once they decided the 70 years is up, then now they're free to do what they want, and he's now partying with these holy vessels from the temple. So that's the story with Daniel, and they see words written on the wall, and nobody could read them, and Daniel read them. That night... Um, Media and Persia decide to turn around and re-go back to battle. Belshazzar is killed. And now Persia and Madai, or Media, are now the, the um, joint rulers of the world. And that gets us into the beginning of the story. Ahasuerus becomes king. He was not from royal blood. But he did marry a girl from royal blood. And her name was Vashti. And it seems it's a big deal. This Vashti is a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And she wants to continue the legacy of her grandfather to make sure the temple is never rebuilt. And it's a big deal even in different uh, parts of the prayers. We, we relate. We talk about this Vashti who's, okay, she's a queen. Okay, so it's Ahasuerus' wife. She's a queen. So what? But it, was, it obviously was a big deal because she was a force to make sure the temple can't be rebuilt. So Ahasuerus now becomes king. And three years into his rule, according to his calculation, the 70 years is over. So now he makes a party. Now, interesting enough, he had moved his kingdom to Shushan. That was not the capital. He made his, his new kingdom in Shushan. That city does not exist anymore. Um, archaeologically, they have found the area. And as I always like to say, I had bought one of these nice archaeological books to explain and show what, where the palace was, what everything looked like. And we had that flood a bunch of years ago, and I never replaced uh, some of those books that I lost. But 
I did once have it because I was into that archaeology stuff. In any case, whatever the reasons are, um, Ahasuerus moves his capital to Shushan. Shushan is a very cosmopolitan-type city. There's perhaps because Ahasuerus moves his kingdom there, but you're going to have people from all around the world, Jews, non-Jews, everywhere. Everyone is in that city. And because it's a cosmopolitan city, it's almost like you didn't know he's Jewish, he's not Jewish, who cares? A very interesting type of city. So Ahasuerus, after three years, according to his calculation, the 70 years are up, and he goes that and he makes a party. Now, parties in those days were not like, you know, we make a party, you know, you make a dinner or something, an event, and the planning, and who knows what. And uh, the party lasts for a day, an afternoon, an evening, deep into the evening. I mean, how long could the party go? No, his party is 180 days. He made two parties. He made a 180-day party, and he made a seven-day party for the local populace. And during that party, he again takes out the 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 holy vessels because again it's it's their way of uh, of sticking it to God to say seventy years are up, Jewish people aren't going back, prophecy's not happening, it's all over, and some say he even wore the clothes of the high priest, and now he has to be punished by God. It's fascinating that his punishment's going to be that Vashti, this granddaughter of is going to get killed. That's his punishment, not that he gets killed. But this Vashi gets killed. Notice that may have been a a linchpin to his power, and now she's dead. What, what happened? He, um, they're all drunk, and they, they call her. He they, well, he wants to show off her beauty like a beauty pageant. But of course, why wear clothes when you want to show off your, her beauty? And God uh, ah, flicks her tail, pimples, whatever it is. She ain't going. She gets angry. She curses at the king. He doesn't know what to do. Um, and Haman gives the, the the advice you should be killed, and there should be letters sent out from the king that anybody who disobeys, any wife who disobeys, how dare a wife disobey her husband? So the law of the land is a wife must obey her husband. Try that one nowadays. I just try that concept that uh, the Senate just passed the law that wives must obey their husbands. Now, in those days... They, they looked at that letter as a joke because whoever heard of a wife not obeying a husband? Outrageous, no such thing. We look at it and say, you know, we husbands, uh, we do our best to do whatever our wife tells us, right? That's always a joke, uh, husband and wife. And, uh, and I think they ask the husband, they say, um, you know, who's in control of the house? Like, are you in charge? Is your wife in charge? Let me ask my wife. My wife says that I'm in charge, right? But... You get the picture, right? So times have changed, that's for sure. But the bottom line is that this ridiculous letter was sent out as a proclamation from the king that that every wife must listen to her husband and speak the husband's language. Again, it was a the world was a, one big uh, chalampat. So you have different people from different countries, and uh, all of a sudden we're declaring what is the language of the house. A ridiculous letter but for a good purpose. And it was the fact that the first letter comes out, the second letter that's going to come out is um, is going to be ignored, or at least not acted upon immediately. So that's going to be important. We're going to get there. So moving along in this story. So this we, we've gotten a, a, a whole intro, the whole first chapter 
of the Megillah is to give us this whole intro, the background of what is going on in this country. Who's Ahasuerus? Is he a wise king? Is he a foolish king? Um, getting rid of Vashti. It's almost like God is slowly but surely, uh, for those whose eyes are open, is uh, running the show. Those who want to open their eyes and see it will see it. Those who don't want to see it will pay for it as the story moves along. Now, the um, the king wakes up after the party. Vasti's been executed. He needs a new wife. But this time, he doesn't want a wife who is the one, is, is the power behind the throne. In other words, Vasti was the royal blood. So now Ahasuerus is going to look for a wife who really is not of royal blood to show the world that my royalty is starting from me. I don't need my wife for my royalty. So he is going to make a beauty pageant. You make a beauty pageant. And um, it's, again, it's, I mean, it's not just a beauty pageant, right? He's going to try out the merchandise. So they send out the proclamation, and they're going to be gathering girls, and they're going to get a year to prepare themselves, and each one gets a night with the king, and they can bring whatever they want, and any food, and any music. And, but again, now you're in the king's harem. Right? Once you're in, you're not getting out. You're in the harem, but you're not the queen. So Esther is also brought in. It's fascinating in the Talmud. Was she really beautiful? Was she not beautiful? Did she have this, this, um, this, um, the Hebrew word is chain, like everybody liked her. Everybody thought she was from their country. Everybody thought she was one of them. And interesting enough, Mordechai gives Esther a very, a, 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 an important command. He says to Esther, you're a righteous person. You are a tzaddikist. There's no reason that such that God would allow a person like yourself to marry the king. The fact that you're even being brought to the palace tells me something, right? God is pulling the strings over here. Something is going on. Therefore, let's not tell anybody who you are. You grew up in my house. For some reason, like I told you, it's a cosmopolitan area. For some reason, Esther being brought up by Mordechai is not a proof that she's Jewish. In other words, you could have had your, your spies out there trying to figure out, right, and all your detectives, who is Esther and where is she from, and there was no way to figure it out. It happens to be that Esther's father died when her mother was pregnant with her, and, she, and her mother died when Esther was born. So there's no parents. So Mordechai raises her. But just because this righteous Mordechai is raising this girl does not automatically mean she's Jewish. And therefore, Mordechai says, don't tell anybody who and what you are. We're going to leave that. And then it's her turn, and, and the king brings her in, and the king declares Esther as his queen. And he wants to know, again, this is the whole world, who, who are you? What nation are you from? What are you? Who are you? And she doesn't say. And he tries tricks and presents and lowering taxes, and he even tries bringing you know, a second beauty pageant in. But Esther doesn't budge. She doesn't say who she is. And then one more little part to end the second chapter, and that is that she tells Ahasuerus, you know, uh, my, uh, my friend Mordechai over here, the one who took care of me, um, he's a, 
an old rabbi. He speaks a lot of languages. He would be a great advisor for you. It's very good for kings. It was, it was something that even the great Nebuchadnezzar did. They always had Jewish advisors. You should have a Jewish advisor. Again, and the king is not putting two and two together. I'm sure he has his detectives running around. But just because Esther knows this guy, Mordechai, who's a Jew, and she suggests that he should be an advisor, does not tell anybody that Esther's Jewish. Mordechai hangs out by the king's gate. That, it seems to be, was part of his job. And he overhears the plan. This big sin and Seresh um, hatch a plan. They want to poison Ahasuerus. I even saw some say... They wanted to poison Esther, and they were going to kill Achishverish. But in any case, they were looking to to um, assassinate the king. And Mordechai overhears the plot. He tells it to Esther. Esther tells the plan to Achishverish. They investigate, and uh, they find them guilty, and they execute them. And it's written down in the Chronicles of Achishverish that he was saved by Mordechai. And crazy, he doesn't get rewarded. Uh, completely slips the king's mind that the guy who just saved him from an assassination attempt um, is not rewarded. That's unheard of. At this point, we're at already two large chapters into the Megillah. Nothing really has taken place yet except that God has put all the pieces in place. We have Mordechai by the king's gate. We have Mordechai is owed big time by the king. We have Esther, who's the queen. Um, we we have it's it, everything is set up. God, as we the, the phrase in the Talmud is that the medicine is created before the disease. So when the hit comes, the 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 healing potion, the power to heal, it's already there. It doesn't it doesn't have to be discovered. We don't have to make a new vaccine. The vaccine is already here. And when they get sick, then we give them the vaccine right away. That's what's really happening in the first two chapters. And then, now the Jewish people are in for their punishment. What do we do wrong? Because God's not letting somebody try to destroy the Jewish nation if we're innocent. That's not happening. So it's debatable what happened. Either we bow down to an idol by Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted everybody bowing down to him or to his idol. Either we did that, or we benefited from the party, that seven-day party that Ahasuerus made. Probably not kosher food, but whatever it is, we benefited from that party. In either case, we were, in either case, we were showing that you know our uh, our fealty to Ahasuerus. We were sort of. Uh, Achishverosh makes a party, the 70 years are over, and you're going along with the party? I mean, is that what you're doing? You're saying God's not taking care of you anymore? So that kind of action um, causes a reaction that God's going to say, you're not forgetting about me. You're going to cry. You're going to plead for your life. So now that's what's going to happen. Now, this, again, this next part of the story is fascinating so Haman becomes prime minister. Okay, great. We already know from early in the Megillah that he is a high advisor. Fine. He's a very wealthy man. He's the wealthiest man in the world. Would you call him an oligarch? Maybe. Maybe he's all, all the oligarchs put together. He's the wealthiest man in the world. And uh, part of being prime minister, the king declares everybody bows down to Haman. 
Mordechai refuses to bow down. Could be many reasons he doesn't want to bow down. Um, some say there was an idol dangling from Haman's neck. Some say that, uh, that Haman was actually a, a, an indentured servant to Mordechai. It was sort of like a private deal from earlier times where both generals and Haman ran out of supplies and Mordechai supplied them and Haman had to write him a letter that he's a slave. There's different stories, but the bottom line is Mordechai refuses to bow down. Haman is incensed. This is a slight to his honor. He cannot handle this. Haman cannot handle that a guy won't bow down. And he's a Jew. So therefore, I have to kill Mordechai. Okay, great. You don't like Mordechai, go kill him. For some reason, Haman decides that it's not good enough just to kill Mordechai. He has to wipe out the entire Jewish nation. And the music is playing, and we keep it short and sweet. So if you want to know part two of what happens in the Purim story, then stay tuned. Of course, thank you to one of the sponsors. Listen, I can't do without you. Thank you to one of the production team. We have David and Andy in the back. I hope I've left some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi T. Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it.